Welcome to the Idea Land Podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Yes, it's just me. My Irish voiceover artist is on break. So it is episode 11 and we've got the perfect person for, well, episode 11. It's Dr. Sandra Scheinbaum. Now, Dr. Scheinbaum is a psychologist by training, but currently is a leading figure in the field of health coaching. Sandy talks about what health coaching is, why we all struggle to do the things that we know are good for us, and how being more comfortable with being uncomfortable is a good thing. The reason I started this podcast uh, it was because I have this burning question that I just don't know the answer to, and I'm always trying to help figure it out. Um, and it's it's called Idea Land for the very reason of, that um, I don't know where good ideas come from. So I always ask everybody this super loaded question in the beginning. It's like, where do good ideas come from? That is a really profound question. And I have often wondered the same thing. So I had a good idea about six and a half, seven years ago now to uh, start a school to train health coaches. And I don't know where that came from. It's sort of one day, an idea just that popped into my head. Why don't we uh, collaborate with the Institute for Functional Medicine to start a program um, to train health coaches to put together all of the bits and pieces of learning that I had over the years, which came from functional medicine, from positive psychology, from mind-body medicine, from cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, but it's like there's a, a song um, by Frankie Valley from the Four Seasons, and it's like it, it it comes from the the movie Jersey Boys. It's like okay, just just was walking along and like this idea popped into my head, and that was the inspiration for uh, their their breakthrough hit um, and uh, Sherry. So who they didn't know where it came from, and, and so I think so many people who are in a creative space say it's, it's often when you least expect it. So it's when you're taking a walk, when it's when you're in the shower, uh, when you're meditating, but it's not often when you're sitting down and I'm going to get this idea and I'm going to force it out. Isn't that weird how humans work like that? Like the brain, there's a couple of themes that seem to be common, right? Like when Einstein is talking about how he comes up with this, he's like, I take a walk. Like there's something about movement or maybe it's just do you think it's like a, a, a you, you, you do all this work for years and there's machinery under the hood that's just humming and processing and creating these connections? And it's, it's almost as if we just could create like a quiet space for that stuff to bubble to the surface, then it will. And it's just trusting that it will, right? I mean, you, is this something you've noticed? yourself yeah and i think it's a because it is a right brain process and you need to be in a parasympathetic state um, to allow that creativity to happen or those ideas to generate whereas if you are in a work state you tend to be it's more left brain it's more analytical but it's also more of a sympathetic state um, at a very low level of activating a stress response. And so uh, therefore your, your brain is not as likely to just imagine things. And um, so I, I think that this is 
uh, something that uh, so many people who have created things that have described that it's, they just can't force it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know I try all the time too, like, like a lot of us. Um, so how did a commodities trader learn about brain science? You have to tell this story. Cause when I, when I read that about you, I, if you ever seen the movie trading places, Yes. Um, and as someone who used to live in Chicago, I just had this idea of, you know, the mercantile exchange, right? <laughs> Where those right. two were just creating chaos amongst the chaos that existed. You, you're going to have to tell our listeners like how you got to be this expert in brain science and human development from that, <laughs> from that background. Well, it's a long story because uh, I'm now in my 70s. And uh, actually, my roots, I have to say, were in brain science. So I uh, was a teacher. I would, then I became a special education teacher. I had my master's in learning disabilities. So we were looking at brain function, kids specifically, and what causes breakdowns in learning. And we were coming up with remediation protocols. And after doing that, uh, I felt like, oh, there's something more. And I had never pursued anything that had to do with finance, with uh, numbers. And I had the opportunity to spend a summer. I was still teaching. And oh, for the summer the, in 1976, 77, the place to be in Chicago was the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the Chicago Board of Trade. Chicago was the hub for commodities trading. And so I knew some people who were in that business and they said, oh, come and be a runner for the summer. The runners were like the clerks that ran in and out of the pits yeah. to fill orders. And so I did that and was really attracted to this world, thought like, what? I can do this. This was a world of equal opportunity for all. There yeah. were people who dropped out of high school who were standing in the pits with people who had PhDs in finance and economics, for example. And the pits, I should say, this was, if you've ever seen pictures of it, it's open outcry. And there's pits were literally pits where people would stand shoulder to shoulder on these risers. And they would call out, buy one, buy sold, and it was chaotic. So uh, at the time, this was again, 1977, it was, uh, I was, I eventually got a seat at the exchange. So I was now in the pits trading. I'm like, I'm five, barely five one. But they're also, they're only like five women who are on this whole huge trading floor. <laughs> I mean, it was that, like walking into a men's locker room. And uh, there were people who were, because they were those who were in the pits, it was an advantage to be loud and big. So there were these ex-football players and these huge guys. And I'm like standing crushed between them. You, you were knocked down. You were spit on. You, were, uh, you lost what? your voice. Uh, it was it was chaotic and um, and it was extremely stressful and so I learned a lot. I didn't last. I quickly realized this was not for me. I liked being in the helping profession and so I eventually went back, got more certificates in early childhood education, for example, started teaching in a teacher training program. Then got my doctorate in clinical psychology. I went on to have a, a practice in mind body 
studied medicine for many, many years doing biofeedback. What I learned from the that year of, of training was the <clears throat> to trust your instinct but also to use prudence. You had to, there were people who took extreme risks and ended up um, losing a fortune, uh, and, but also to focus on what really matters. And I saw people who were not driven by meaning and purpose, their only meaning, because this was a place where you didn't, uh, if you were an independent trader, you didn't work for anybody, nobody worked for you, it was just you. <clears throat> and you were, at the end of the day, it was basically, did I lose money? Did I make money? And so many people got into trouble with their values with that because it led to drugs and alcohol and overspending. And uh, as opposed to being uh, working in a way that it's satisfying uh, a sense of purpose and what I found since being in health and wellness and getting to know many people who are very successful in this space is that starts with mission, mission to help people lead healthier lives, for example, and that is sustainable. Uh, the other thing I learned that your things change is and and afterwards as I uh, followed people who were in that business is the ability to pivot because there is no open outcry anymore. The commodities uh, floors yeah. do not exist. It's all on computers. The big banks got involved. It's all computer trading. And so many people uh, were clinging to that old way of being like, oh, there'll always be the pits. There'll always be room for this type of trading. Well, no, that didn't happen. But they were not willing or felt that they were capable to learn this new system of trading. And so they ended up you know, having to um, really shift and, um, and suffer major economic setbacks as a result. Yeah, it's a fascinating window into like how humans collaborate or cooperate or compete, isn't it? it and it's, it's like a weird little microcosm and you happen to be an observer to that. It's such a unique time period because you're right. Like I see the stuff going on. Like what do you think about, and I'm, this is a little bit of an aside, but what do you think about the the Robin Hood and the GameStop, uh, the GameStop um, uh, phenomena, right? These meme stocks. You can see people, it's almost like this virtual pits again. Right. It's it's like, how loud can we be with our social media presence? How much support can we rally? Um, except it seems like this idea of detaching yourself, the lone trader phenomenon, that seems like it's an archetype. Would it be safe to say that's an archetype that you as a psychologist will definitely see again in treatment? Right. Is that just lead to a bad outcome, not just in trading, but just in general? It does because I think the key word is loan. And uh, many traders, uh, and I think this is true, it, it really is morphed and it's the same process. It's just the, the scene is different. Um, so back then in the 70s and eighties, it was a field, commodities were not well regulated at the time. Uh, it was uh, basically like the Wild West. And anybody could go down to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and get a seat. And, uh, and it was just you. And there was this feeling of being alone. But there was also this feeling like 
you money was everything and it was um because there there were no it's not like if you're in an old school type of corporation i got a promotion people complimented me on a job well done i'm feeling uh there's camaraderie amongst my peers and at the exchange there was not that there was camaraderie where people would commiserate about the markets going south uh, and how much money they may have lost but it wasn't that sense of you know i have a strong purpose and so they tended to the the um, getting a particular watch or there was a particular yeah. um, type of Mercedes uh, uh, at the time. And that was your, okay, I made it. But then what happened then the next day when you lost all that money uh, and there was a lot of shame involved that we had, uh, my husband eventually got into the, in, was became a trader as, as well and became very involved. But we had close friends who committed suicide, who had severe problems with drugs and alcohol, who had very fancy houses on Lake Michigan, lost it all. And it really was a test of values. And we're seeing the same thing in, in fields today, also in, in tech world, but also, you know, thinking that, oh, in Bitcoin and all, you know, I can just make a fortune. And it's there's, and particularly in social media as well, it, it's all the sense of like unreality. Uh, and uh, yeah. it's, it's hard to feel grounded. And also uh, there was the sense of there are the, the commodities traders traveled together. They felt like nobody else understood them. It, there were the, you know, the rest of the people, the doctors, the lawyers who had to work for a living, uh, you know, even if they were making a good living, but right. there was work as whereas they were done it two in the afternoon and could go party after that. If you saw The Wolf of Wall Street, which is a movie about uh, stock trading, but it was very, very similar type of world. What what do you think of? Well, that's interesting because I see I saw Jordan Belfort uh, on the on a news show or something, you know, hawking something or giving his insight, which is just fascinating. I feel like when people watch that movie, there's two things that go on. There's undeniable charisma and attraction to that level of success um, and that, that that charismatic personality, which can definitely be hijacked for like bad things, right? And like he was able to hijack that, wanting that. So people watch that. And even I was like, I kind of want to be him a little bit, just a little bit, right? That's definitely against my values. There's a values mismatch between what that person is doing with his team. Why are we attracted to that? Why is that a story worth telling? Why does that movie attract the audience as it does? Why does he still, even on that show, I'm like, I stopped the channels, channel surfing. I was like, hmm, I'm kind of curious to see what this guy's got to say. What can we take from that that's good? And what should we leave behind? Yeah, I think what we can take that is good is one of the pillars of well-being, which is achievement or accomplishment. So getting to a certain level uh, of achievement is one of the keys to well-being. And it can start, you know, well, I got a good grade on this test or I, I won this game. And so that is something that contributes to your well-being. 
I think we're attracted to the kind of, there always used to be a show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Uh, Robin uh, and Thicke. so Robin it's, Thicke, yeah. yeah. Robin Leach, sorry. Uh, yes, Robin Leach. Robin Leach. Um, yeah, and Robin, right. And yeah. uh, so it's a glimpse into a world that we're not a part of. And, you know, it's like taking a tour of the castle or um, like uh, uh, the Real Housewives shows. Why are we attracted to their story? So yeah. I think it is um, just uh, we can one level, we can have that appreciation of the um, there might be elements of excellence. So it might be if there's a particular a car that they're driving or they're, um, they go into their home and you see these beautiful furnishings or a, a yacht or it, it's just looking at beautiful things. And so some people in, enjoy that. I do. I love I love that, um, yeah. you know, to to see, um, you know, to uh, look at designer ball gowns or I, I was obsessed with um, the movie, the, uh, the TV series, The Crown, uh, early days, so, you know, look inside the, they had recreated the Windsor Castle, for example, and we're attracted to, to seeing that. And uh, it is not, that's not a bad thing. Where it becomes problematic is that when you are living that life and it is not reality, and there's a sense that either end of the spectrum of wealth or in anything really, the more opportunity for dysfunction and disillusionment and ultimately depression and anxiety and not a life well lived. So people who are the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you have, um, if you don't have a roof under your head, if you don't have money to buy food, I mean, that, that extreme, of course, is going to lead to hardship, that type of adversity is going to be uh, very, very seriously problematic. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the farther you go there, the more wealth you accumulate. Uh, in many, many cases, the more problems you have. And so we're always looking for this sweet spot. And that's true in terms of our physical health too, or if we look at our lab tests, for example, and we want to be at, there's a sweet spot that's optimal. And then uh, we can, you know, like exercise is a good example. You don't want to be a couch potato, but now they're finding there's serious consequences of people who are overdoing it. <clears throat> and that can be inflammatory as well. Yeah. As I'm, I'm just trying to sort out the kind of underpinning processing that you've done for years to get you to that point where you came up with this, hey, you know what we should really do is consolidate this into an actionable thing, which is health coaching. But just explore that background a little more. Are you concerned that, as you've seen over the years, psychology is a field grow uh, and people in different states of anxiety, it's hard to know, it's hard to judge, are we getting better at this, detecting, treating or is, is the problem actually growing too? Because you read Steven Pinker's last book, 
right? And you're like, okay. This makes a strong case for things in general getting better. People are more literate. There being more people around the world are lifted out of poverty. Um, there, there's more places where there's running water and electricity. Everyone's got inf inf uh, access to information, which means opportunities to make a living. And then I look at the mental health landscape. And you know, from a physician's eyes, but also from a tech entrepreneur, and, and see that even in the tech space and how people are pushing themselves, how they're addicted to social media, to these reality fantasy lives that aren't really being grounded. Are we getting better or are we getting sicker? I believe we're getting sicker. Okay. I think there's um, data now that um, a great majority of people are metabolically unhealthy. The number of people who are metabolically healthy keeps declining the skyrocketing rates of type 2 diabetes, uh, Alzheimer's diseases dramatically on the rise around the world. And I think it relates to a number of things. Our, our diets are heavily processed um, and are con very connected to the you know, rise of fast food. It's getting worse. People are not knowing how to cook anymore. They're rejecting traditional meals of their past, for example. And then uh, that we're living in a toxic soup as far as uh, the environmental pollutants and all of the issues that we have there is, is another contributor. The other is in terms of some basic values. And uh, there are also uh, many issues with um, education. I think there, what's promising is the fact that there is more opportunity where anybody thanks thanks to our technology so anybody you know with a cell phone and uh there are people who could be in their basement and they could come up with brilliant ideas for apps and for different ways that can better humanity so by the so i, I think there's also great promise it, it's always the two sides of the coin so you know the tech world has great promise to um, help people you know create better health and i, I think is if we were to just say, oh, it's getting worse, well, we're not taking into account, again, going back to, you know, I was talking earlier about my days, um, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, well, who could have imagined cell phones at that particular time or all the other technologies that we have that are making our lives better and, and easier? Yeah, it's when we view them as tools that can be used for good or evil, it, it's it's interesting. It's I think there's a weird middle category, right, where they're used with well and just like well intentions that uh, that just there was emergent behavior that that causes dysfunction that could was difficult to predict, or maybe it wasn't that difficult to predict. They just didn't think it was going to be that scale. So. Um, Instagram and the effect on anxiety of young women, for example, of just looking at these photos all the time. I think Jonathan Haidt talks about this and skyrocketing rates of self-harm and uh, anxiety. Anxiety is something um, I've seen personally just explode over the last 10 years. I'm not sure if that's an effect of us being able to detect it and it's okay to talk about it more. Maybe it was always there. But one thing related to the treatment of all these things I wanted to ask you about, because it comes up a lot and it's related to health coaching and, and improving ourselves. What is positive psychology and why 
why did it take so long for this to become a thing? Like, why wasn't this part of the mission, per se, of psychology from the beginning? Yeah, so positive psychology in a nutshell is the scientific study of what's right with you and not what's wrong with you. And psychiatry came from medicine and it was rooted in finding the diagnosis, discovering what's wrong with you, and then using appropriate treatment. And that could be medications, it could be uh, the psychotherapy process. And psychotherapy originated as a psychoanalytic process. And the idea was, again, starting from dysfunction, either you were dysfunctional, you were dysfunctional because you had a dysfunctional family system, or your mother was dysfunctional. And so it was the idea that um, it was your damage, and uh, that you had to be fixed by somebody else. And the whole notion of positive psychology is based on asking these questions like, well, how do people flourish? What constitutes a life well-lived? And it's based on the idea that there are pillars of well-being. And we all need, it's called PERMA is the acronym. So we all need positive emotion, that's the P. E is engagement or flow, getting lost in something that really takes us away and relationships that are meaningful, a meaning and purpose in life, and then a sense of accomplishment or achievement. How do we get there? It's through our our strengths, our character strengths. And we all have them. And when we express them, especially those that are signature strengths that come very naturally to us, uh, then we're thriving. And this holds great potential for helping people with anxiety, but there has been a dramatic increase in anxiety and it's a multitude of factors. So uh, it is, yes, there are potential lots of stressors, but you know, there were times in the past, if we looked at previous generations who lived through the Great Depression, for example, uh, the darkest days of World War II, and yet the, their coping ability in many ways uh, was better. And there's the many things we can look at from a functional medicine position, we would look at the root cause. Well, what about the quality of the food that they were eating? Maybe, you know, if they were on a farm and they were growing their own food and they had magnesium in the soil, which we don't have anymore, well, maybe that was better. Maybe they were getting out and doing a lot of physical work. So that contributed as well, that movement. Uh, And then maybe they were surrounded by neighbors and community, Um, you know, having like when I grew up in the 50s, people would go outside in their neighborhood, they'd sit on the stoop and you knew everybody around and you had your extended family that you would see on Sundays. Now people are scattered all over the world. Are also the toxic load was less. So there's many factors that we can look at that's contributing um, sleep, for example. Uh, so we want to look at it in terms of a broader perspective than just think about, well, it is the emotions uh, that are, you know, people are worried more and that might be true, but uh, we have to look at, uh, again, the whole picture, all elements of our lifestyle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, 
it's there's this these weird paradoxes about how we practice this mind body thing, and I, and I wanted to go over a couple with them, a couple a couple of them with you because I'm so curious about like this was really I was really helpful, and I can see now where positive psychology like the that that questioning and that highway to go down wasn't obvious at the beginning because you're coming to us because we're a profession that's fixing you in, in terms of a, we're mechanics. We're not tuning you, we're fixing you. And that's a different type of mechanic. Um, I, I see that paralleled in my medical training, medical practice. It's like, we don't really talk about the functional medicine stuff, even though it's obvious to people. That's one of these weird paradoxes I've noticed. I don't know if you've noticed this too. It's when I talk about these underlying root causes of these metabolic issues and things you were talking about, like sleep and exercise, the regular lay person who doesn't have medical training just gets it. They're like, they're like, dude, you're telling me stuff that's like, that's like obvious to me, right? They're like, yeah. So what can you do for me? Is like the next question, right? Whereas you talk to a physician and you're like, well, yeah, that's important, but we need to be on Lipitor. And you're like, I agree there's a role for that, but I'm just, you know, it's like, there has to be a solid foundation first of these, these lifestyle issues. I'm just curious, how did we get to this place where, where it's like not obvious to physicians despite it being in our guidelines and our textbooks, that this foundational element of lifestyle, attitudes, social networks is important. And I think we almost got stuck in this weird reductionist view where we see people as a collection of lab results. So we see them as organ systems working together. And we forgot that the most important biomarker from the most important organ was how, you, how do you feel? It's from the brain. How did we get to that spot, right? Is it the same thing where we just, the fixers, we're starting from a place of fixing versus helping enabling? Yeah, I think it, it begins uh, from, from goodness, from a desire to serve. So go to medical school because you want to serve others. You, you want to help. You want to um, be somebody who uh, is there for another person. And often you see yourself as the ones who can, can fix it. And, and in many ways, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, that is acute care medicine. If somebody is coming into a trauma center, uh, you are the fixer and that's yeah. an appropriate role. And yeah. then where it becomes problematic is the, uh, the, the range of so-called lifestyle diseases. So those aren't treated in the ER or the doctor's uh, office. That you know, type two diabetes, for example, obesity, uh, these are conditions that where you're, as you're a doctor, your patients have to have take some control and ownership to change their habits and it's hard. But the other factor is that just, I think the process of going to medical school, internship, residency, you are sleep deprived yourself, you're overworked. Doctors now are so burned out, they're exhausted. They are in healthcare systems where they are cogs in the wheel. They're told, you know, you have seven minutes with a person. You can only work on one symptom today. You know, we can't talk, we can't connect. And that's what I hear uh, from a lot of doctors. They are just, you know, they want to serve, they want to help their patients, they want to have this therapeutic alliance, they don't have time, they're physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, 
And patients are very difficult with these complex chronic diseases. And so, you know, maybe if you're in a specialty like orthopedics, you're an orthopedic surgeon and you are the one who is, you know, fixing things. But yeah. if you are primary care medicine, uh, that is, I think, where we're seeing, you know, more doctors suffer from anxiety themselves. In fact, there was a recent study in one of the American Psychological Association's journals. It was a really well done randomized controlled study that they gave coaches to doctors and followed them for there were not very many sessions. And they really um, were able to connect with this coach and uh, it resulted in a significant increase in, in their well-being, which of course is only going to not only help them, but help the allied professional staff who are also exhausted and burned out like our nurses and help patients as well. It's like the, the paradox we talked about, which is like good ideas come when you're not trying, right? And you talked about flow states. And how do you, how do you get into a flow state? Sure, it starts with mindfulness and being fully present. So for example, if we're having this conversation and I am fully present of hearing your voice, of um, focusing on this particular time, then I may drown out something that just happened outside. I might not even hear it because I'm in such a flow state. If I'm, if somebody is playing the piano or even watching something on Netflix and they're so involved in that story, uh, kids are like this all the time. You know, they're called to dinner. They're so involved in, in watching their TV show. They don't even hear it. And yeah. uh, we often call that ADD uh, and being, you know, so, um, uh, that, but it's also, it, we need that for the, um, to, in, to really enjoy, to be fully engaged. And um, there was a classic book in the 90s called Flow uh, by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi uh, that started this process of really looking at flow. We can build it into our lives through activities that are guaranteed to bring us joy. Barbara Fredrickson, who is a noted researcher in positive psychology, she talks about prioritizing positivity. So it is where you actually say, okay, I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to pencil it into my schedule. I'm going to have it there every Monday at this particular time. I'm going to be in that class. And you're doing it because it's guaranteed by the time you're through with that yoga practice, you know, you're going to feel happy. You're going to be in a good mood. And so when you are in that class for that period of time, you might be in a flow state. So you're doing two things at once. You're, doing, you're prioritizing positivity so that you can increase happiness, but you are also uh, experiencing this engagement or flow where you're so absorbed. It can be a mental process. So somebody who is trying to figure out a problem, they're so absorbed in that, that they lose track. Uh, writers, again, people who are uh, composers, song composers, 
talk about being in this flow state as well. It often, so it could be intrapersonal. It can be just within you, like you're playing the piano and you're so involved, or it can be interpersonal. You're uh, having a uh, brainstorming session with uh, work colleagues and you're all like on fire generating ideas. So you're connected or a, 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 a romantic relationship where you're totally in sync and in flow. Yeah, it is so addictive. Um, I used to skydive a lot. <clears throat> and and this is one of the things, I'm not sure if anyone's done a study like this. You probably may know more about this, but uh, these behaviors, I have, I have a long history of behaviors like this. Uh, and people are like, well, are you, are, are you know, the, 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 the typical response is something, goes something like this, right? So, oh my gosh, it's an adrenaline junkie thing. And I'm like, you kind of lose that adrenaline after a while. It's actually not about that. It, it, it does, it, it, skydiving has an amazing ability to, to create your, your, your life priorities, uh, turn them into an upside, upside down pyramid very quickly. So it's like your priority for the next 60 seconds is one thing. And it's to pull the ripcord and, and, you know, and that's it, right? So like your taxes can wait and all those things can wait. So your to-do list becomes very efficiently um, filtered down. And that is a very addictive, uh, addictive state. And I think that's what people, that's what I was chasing for sure. Uh, and flying a plane is the same way. Like when you're landing a plane, it's like you could ask me my mother's name in that last five minutes and I wouldn't be able to tell you, right? Because you're just so in that moment and you want to do it right. And I find it difficult to, it takes work uh, and planning to, to build that end into our daily routines. And like you said about um, your colleague, I mean, I, I think um, there's something about this planning, uh, this planning for success. Does that seem to be a common theme amongst people who can achieve this consistently? Yes, uh, absolutely. So it is setting an intention uh, my friend BJ Fogg, who wrote Tiny Habits, is the number one behavior change expert in the world. It's an incredible book. And he has what he calls the Maui habit because he has a house in Maui. And he, his habit is every day when I wake up, my feet touch the floor, I say, today is going to be a good day. So you're setting that intention, you're planning for success. And that's just one example of how you can, can do that. And so then you would break down um, throughout the day uh, times where you might um, be derailing yourself. And then through a cognitive change process, you shift. So let's say you start to, let's say you make a mistake and um, you can start to berate yourself like, oh, you know, I always do this. I screwed up again. I'll never get anything right. What's wrong with me? And then you catch those thoughts, which are irrational, catastrophic, and then you convert them to more rational self-talk. And that creates a, um, an easing. It, it gets you out of the stress response and into or back or into a parasympathetic response. And then you're able to generate more creative ideas and pay attention. So, so you won't make as many mistakes. Yeah, because when you were saying that about braiding yourself, I was just thinking well, that sounds very familiar, right, to a lot of us. Um, can we talk about that for a second? So how powerful are words to us? It seems very counterintuitive, especially maybe it's just a doctor thing. It just seems like it's wishy-washy, right? But it's it, it, do you remember Saturday Night Live? Remember Stuart Smalley? I always remember, you know, and it was like, we always make fun of him yes. with his daily affirmations. Like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people, you know, people like me. But is there a power to that? 
Absolutely. There is a strong power to that. And this has been well validated. Uh, so um, I was fortunate to be trained to have training from Dr. Albert Ellis in cognitive behavior therapy. So he is one of the originators of this field. And we see many variations of it. And just about every self-help guru, inspirational speaker will have some element of, of what was started as cognitive behavior therapy. And it uh, was a movement um, away from psychoanalytic, the idea that we're disturbing ourselves because of what we're saying to ourselves. And that's creating then an anxious state, it's creating um, uncomfortable feelings, and we can shift because we have control over that. So let's say we're doing something, we make a mistake. And we say, oh, I blew it. I, you know, I'm so stupid. Why do I keep doing this? We get ourselves really worked up. I'll never amount to anything. Um, this is awful, horrible, terrible. Um, and so what we could do is recognize that what we, we are upsetting ourselves. We are exaggerating. We're catastrophizing. We're engaging in all or nothing type of thinking, you know, I'm, it's awful, I'm awful, this is horrible. Well, is it really awful or horrible? So you, you, what you're doing is like talking yourself off the ledge. You're going back to thoughts that you're not making a situation that was bad, good. That would be magical thinking. And that's what this is often misinterpreted as. You're really going to more of a rational type of thinking. So let's say you made a mistake. Well, that's unfortunate. It was too bad. It was inconvenient. Um, now you might have to do something over again if you made a mistake, but it's not awful, horrible, terrible. And you are not a loser. You're not a terrible person because of that. Or if you say, I always screw up. And when I was a therapist, I would challenge people when they said, oh, I screwed. I always screwed up. I'll never amount to anything prove it. Okay. And that's what you challenge is if you were yeah. in a, you were a, you know, a witness in a courtroom, prove it. This is just your hypothesis. You've come to that irrational yeah. conclusion, but was there ever a time in your life from the time you were born until the present moment that you didn't screw up? Cause if you say, I always screw up, well, always means 100% of the time, no exception. Is that accurate? And then they say, well, no, you know, I did well in this. I got good grade here. I did this project, um, you know, got high marks for it. Well, then your statement is inaccurate. So let's revise it. And you go to the present situation. Okay, so this happened. It's it's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. Uh, but you know, I, I'm, this is how I'll be prepared for next time. And so that is called growth through challenges, resilience. There are many ways to go about this process. But most of the time, we talked about anxiety. Most of the times, the things we're upsetting ourselves about and getting worked up are really inconsequential. 
Will you remember this in five years? Um, so right. things that, you know, somebody said something to us or we um, were upset about something that happened at work, a situation developed and we keep dwelling on it. Well, fast forward, you know, a year, two years, five years, it's just going to matter. Uh, and then you get into conversations about what really matters in your life. And that's a great way to, um, to let go of the anxiety because now you find you are in a better state. And then what you, we talked about in terms of setting that intention, uh, that's a, we can call stress inoculation. You're actually rehearsing. So if you're about to go into a situation where you know, let's say you're coming home and you know that um, your kids are going to be complaining or nagging about something, then you imagine no matter what happens, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to um, keep my muscles relaxed. I'm going to not tense up. I'm going to just breathe. I'm going to tell myself I'll get through this. Um, I'm not going to react if they start pushing my button. So you are rehearsing you're imagining a different way and when yeah. you set those intentions that's really the process so it's really effective i i love that stress inoculation and and also when you said kids i think you meant when not if right um yes I don't know exactly if I don't have kids yet but i'm i'm, I'm looking for i better set that intention now <laughs> going in so have you ever come across a patient or a, a client that you've coached or counseled through your various practices that was just so uh, intractable, you know, or, or just so difficult to, to move them through a bad pattern of thinking. So they seem to fit a certain archetype. Yeah, I um, would say that I have, um, with this type of work, there is always some change. It could be really tiny but that was what gave them hope. And, and change is not like a flat line. It is like if you're, if you're charting um, stock, right? Okay, it's a trend line, it goes up and down. And what you do is look for patterns. And so within, let's say over several months or even years, it's like, okay, you might feel a very upset at one point in the day and then something, and now you feel great. And so we, our emotions are, it's like a bumpy ride. Uh, and ch the change process is similar. Uh, somebody may um, start out and they're not making any change and things are not going well at all. And then like something will they'll they'll it'll connect they'll they'll have this insight and then it goes well and then um they then there might be a period of time where there's some regression so it's not just like okay i'm gonna work on let's say my anxiety and it's gonna be all better a hundred percent but if you acknowledge um, the fact that it is so variable then that's a step towards feeling better and having less anxiety um, if you expect it. Um, but sometimes it starts with really tiny changes, like one moment during the day where they remember to take a slow belly breath and let out all the tension. Well, that's a win. So we celebrate tiny wins. And that's something that coaches are doing. They're playing such a key role in that because somebody might 
think, oh, I had a miserable week and everything's going wrong and I didn't do my food plan, for example. I meant to go out and exercise and I didn't, but the coach will help them find a different perspective. Well, you know, let's backtrack and let's think about how the week went and maybe the, the, through that identification process, one thing will come up. Well, yeah, I did achieve that. I did that. Yeah, yes, I did, you know, go out for a walk. I had forgotten about that or, or yes, I was at a restaurant and I turned down the dessert. Well, yay, that's a win. And so it's um, really helping. You need a guide often to help you have that new perspective on yeah. the things you're doing well, as opposed to always dwelling on oh, not getting any better and everything's going wrong. It begs the question that, that I was leading, that I was trying to build to this idea of getting in our own way. Um, it's like, why, why do we need a guide? Why don't people, why don't people just do the things that they know are good for them consistently? Yeah. So, uh, it is often an intention behavior gap. So they may set an intention, like they wanted to, uh, eat a particular way throughout the day or not eat. Maybe they set an intention to intermittent fast and then they, um, with the first uh, hunger sign, they go grab something and now they're disappointed. Oh, why can't I follow through on what I intended to? And I think it is, the often it is uh, there's a stress response uh, that is happening, and when we are under stress, we are um, uh, our ability to think things through. The executive functioning part of our brain is compromised, and so because we don't need that to fight or run away from danger, that doesn't take any planning. Um, it's just it's an inst uh, instinct right. to fight or run away. So, uh, so there's that. And then there's often, um, we may not take into account, for example, what if we didn't get good sleep the night before? Well, that's going to affect our decision making. So we may fall off the wagon or we may not uh, eat the way we had planned to because we've now got that stressor going on. So this lack of sleep is affecting our decision making. Uh, we might be influenced by others. So perhaps we said we're going to follow a particular way of eating and then we go out to dinner with friends and somebody says, oh, come on, what's wrong with you? You just try it, just one bite. Or we feel <laughs> yeah. uh, like we have to comply with our, to fit in. Uh, so maybe we had decided we're not going to drink, but everybody's drinking and we don't want to be embarrassed or we don't want to um, have somebody think a certain way about us. So that could play into it. Uh, it you know, and then um, perhaps the, you know, the, the pleasure in the moment is just a stronger pull. And particularly if it's something like sugar, that's a physical addiction. The sugar is calling to you and uh, for to feed those pleasure centers in the brain. And so it could be that as well, as opposed to, again, that self-regulation of walking away from that particular food. It's weird, you know, the coaching... Um... You know, like you look at people like Michael Jordan or these high performers, they get more coaching, not less, right? Like it seems like yes. as you climb the ladder of achievement, you actually need more or could benefit more from coaching. Despite, um, you know, what the fact that he knows how to throw free throws very well, clearly it's probably not that 
mechanical knowledge that his coach is imparting to him. So what are coaches doing? Not just at that level, but in general, but if you could speak to the, the general case, but what is this role of this person? Why do we need this other brain helping our brain? What is it they can see that we can't see? And is that just something that is a fundamental, you think, just an axiom of the human of the human species that it's really hard to coach ourselves? Yeah, we often um, get stuck with tunnel vision. And we, we need somebody to give us a different perspective, to see it with different lens. And so it can be for our health, um, but it can be also, for example, having a trainer, having, you, know, you could be uh, doing an at-home uh, exercise program and watching something online and think you're doing it great, but then you have somebody yeah. to say, well, wait, your form, you know, you're hiking your shoulders or um, it's like they're a mirror and you don't often have access to that when you're on your own. The other thing is that it's a community and it helps when you feel heard, when you have somebody who's your, you know, is your personal cheerleader, is your support. And the beauty of a coaching process, and it comes from humanistic psychotherapy, it's completely client-centered. The client, you are in the driver's seat. It's like a dance and the client is in the, is leading. And it's, that's very different from like how doctors are trained is the expert. I'm going to tell you what to do. I know what's good for you, but in a coaching relationship, it's non-judgmental. And the client uh, is may say, may say, well, you know, my doctor told me I need to do this, this, and this, but I don't know. And I'm overwhelmed and I don't know if I can start this or do all this. And then, uh, so the coach would listen to them and really help them to see that it is in their power to decide. Um, but it is listening without judgment. And that's very, very powerful. How does one... Um, walk that tightrope uh, between, you know, between, between too much autonomy and too much paternalism. And I think medicine, we're still figuring this out, although I'm a big fan of, of letting, you know, feel, making people feel like they're in the driver's seat. I've been a patient as well. And it's a, you know, honestly, being a patient can be a very humiliating experience, even if you're a physician. I think most of the patients, you know, it's so different. People come to the same room, this clinic room, and one person who's the healthcare provider has such a view of this, what's going on. And most of the time, the patients are just lost. I used to have a game, not a game, but it was like a test of, of like intern attention to detail. It's like if I go to, you know, your patient's rooms in the hospital and I ask them, why are you here? And they don't know. I was like, that's our fault, right? And I would, if we, if we ran that experiment on in any emergency room in the United States, like tonight, and asked people who are leaving, like, so what happened? What do you think is going on with you? What's the plan? I uh, would not be very optimistic about the results of that, right? So it's like there's some, it, I, I can think of times when it's like, doc, what do I need to do here? Like my mom's on this ventilator, do we take her off? And it's like, I'm trying to always balance this paternalism uh, versus like letting, you know, not having them be overwhelmed. So how do you do that as a coach? How do you do that as a psychologist? Yeah, well, I think that it is challenging for a clinician 
because you have more time constraints. A coaching session is typically longer um, and it depends on what uh, what the particular encounter is for. So if, if somebody is, uh, have a, has an office visit to learn the results of a test, then it would be much more you're educating, you're communicating the results, and then making sure they've heard you and they've understood. And the coach can be the one who follows up with that. So your doctor has told you this, this, and this. Um, you know, and that's, then it would be a conversation about have they understood that? And then what are their thoughts about it? Does this make sense? Is there, you know, do, is this something, can they picture themselves following this plan? They might start with those really big questions like, what do you want your health for? Um, you know, if what matters most to you? And then um, after that, that big question that gets at meaning and purpose and future self, ideal future self, then it's going back to the present. Well, your doctor, you know, has, has said that he, um, you know, is concerned about um, your blood sugar readings. So, um, and then how would, would you, you know, and he's recommended this for you. Um, what are your thoughts about, um, where, where, where would you like to start? here and it's guiding that to that one small step and uh are you on board with this and then how would you like to you know okay so you've said that you're gonna um do this this and this that you're gonna stop eating after dinner um, how do you want to be you know held accountable how would you like me to to check on you would you like you know text would you like to you know or next week we're going to talk about about this are, are you good with this you know you've said that you are going to reduce the amount of soda that you're you're drinking and you've agreed to you know reduce it from seven uh, glasses a day to five are you still good with that and so it is that being held accountable it is also um, really uh, if they screw up and let's say they come back and they didn't do what they said they were going to do, that the coach is a very non-judgmental, okay, what, let's, you know, what, how, where do you want to go from here? You know, how, um, and, and pulling out any win that they did have. So, um, so it is a, a special relationship where they're feeling like, uh, there's trust, there's rapport that's been established. They feel like this person is almost like their peer because we know that people will say things more to coaches than they do to their doctors. They will be, because they're afraid of being judged or uh, the doctor is the authority figure. They want to look good in their eyes, um, but they may tell the coach, oh, you know, I really didn't follow through. I really, um, you know, I keep forgetting to take this medication. And then the coach has that important role of really communicating back to the doctor and also providing that education as to the importance of following through with that drug, for example. Yeah, it's interesting. As you talk about this, what it reminds me of is this um, idea of discomfort. And it keeps coming up over and over in people. And I've noticed people who um, are really high performers or achieving the the kind of PERMA goals you were talking about, um, they're, they're like comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, and I feel like I hope that that's something that's trainable. And I'm, I'm always trying to improve that 
with myself, but it's, it's difficult because we all like to be comfortable. Um, and then there's kind of the other opposite end of comfort, which is pain. And it's hard to push through pain. So is, is discomfort when it's changing a behavior, um, being coachable even, is this just part of the game? Is this really what we're trying to get clients, patients, ourselves through is being more comfortable with discomfort? And are we too comfortable now as a culture? Yeah, I think that we're learning more and more about growth through challenges and it can be physical, like, you know, if we're always setting our thermostat at 70 degrees and we're never, uh, we don't sweat, for example, or, um, you know, the, the benefit of cold plunges, taking a cold shower, experiencing that intensity, feeling that moment of discomfort, uh, as well as, you know, some other even um, like bitter foods is another one as opposed you know we like sweet foods we don't like the taste of bitter so we don't want to deal with that discomfort of eating something that even though we can get used to it and we can i grew to love um bitter dandelion greens and i love cold showers and i, I like you love cold showers eat. yeah <laughs> you know I, I didn't think i would but um and so we need that um uh, of, you know pushing us um for uh to to stimulate and there's a you know, physiological process for this as, as you know so um to have that in kind of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and it's that principle of hormesis and you stimulate autophagy fasting is is another example of that and uh so I think we uh, probably, you know, as a culture or we've just gotten used to comfort and um, having the um, uh, not pushing those those limits. And we used to do that all the time. Yeah, it's, you know, like Nassim Taleb, you know, talks about anti-fragility. And I feel like yes. um, it's almost like, how about we just change? I think we should just change the doctor, the, the Hippocratic Oath. I think that's irrelevant these days. I think we should change it from, uh, you know, first do no harm. It should probably be more aligned with the idea of anti-fragility, right? It's like first help our patients be more anti-fragile that like there will be these challenges and we'll be there to help you through them versus we're not going to harm you at all because that it's like no we will put you in some discomfort because that's probably better for you right uh, based on what you're saying and in what we've seen um to some level when you have support a support structure around it um how do you challenge yourself these yes. days what's routine what's the routine for you for your personal growth with yeah well um i always thought i was a uh, late night person and i've been challenging myself to get up early so i found that and i love as i um, institute these challenges i love them and they become habits and part of my routine so i get up at like 5 15 5 30 uh, I uh, do a yoga practice and I always challenge myself to do a little bit more. So can I stay in a headstand or the handstand a little bit longer than I did before? I challenge myself. I do Pilates and I'm always um, 
uh, going farther in there, uh, in that process of uh, working in that method and strength training. I've been, I have a tonal uh, and I've been using that and I love the AI driven nature of it. And so challenging myself to lift heavy weights because at my age and I'm very you know, small bone structure. So I've got to protect my bones and avoid sarcopenia. So I really challenge myself there. Cold showers or cold plunges is another way. Um, fast Fasting, intermittent fasting, particularly, sometimes I'll push it a little bit longer. And, uh, and then challenging with brain exercises. I um, have, I'm during the um, lockdown, I always wanted to play the piano and I've got this app, Floki, and I, I just sit what down at the piano and just teaching myself based on, uh, on, on this app. Um, so uh, challenging in terms of learning something new. I think that it's really, really important um, for longevity or to prevent the conditions of aging to stay mentally focused and challenging myself that way is um, learning or relearning Spanish. And um, so I do that uh, on a daily basis. And, um, and sometimes the other challenging for me personally, because my top strength is zest and I'm always moving around and always active. And so uh, challenging myself to rest is, is probably the hardest thing for me. You know, my, my aura ring says, oh, you need to rest. And like, what's rest? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like you're really good at time management, and, and when you you when you say all these things, it's just super impressive. But you've built these things up over time, and learned that. So, you've been able to to do that. Is there hope for the rest of us? Is you know, do we in 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 with the support of coaches, health coaches, or other coaches, is there? Are there any lost souls or, or lost causes, or do you believe that that every human being has some potential to be able to level up in the way that you've you've been able to yes um and as bj fogg uh, says it it's um it look at map m-a-p so motivation so have something you're really motivated i want to stay energetic um and uh, in, as i'm getting older and i'm really motivated to have energy to feel great every day and then I have the ability. So I have the ability to do yoga. I have the ability to, um, to learn, to make the decision to, uh, the, the activities I'm choosing are within my ability. I'm not going to choose something like, um, uh, uh, like skiing. I don't think I have, you know, I don't have, would not have the, the ability to uh, do a particular type of skiing right now, downhill skiing. I, could, but that would be harder. So, so you choose something that's within your ability and you want it, you're highly motivated, and then you have a plan. And your plan, maybe you start small, maybe you start with one yoga pose a day. Um, or if you're a complete beginner, maybe you know you go to a, a class and I'm just gonna go once. And so you don't, you set the expectation so that, oh yeah, I could do that. Or um, can you do one push-up for 10, like start with one? Yeah, I can do that. Um, and so that is uh, the key is that combination of motivation, 
ability, and then you have a plan that's reasonable, that's going to guarantee success. And then the fan, the best element of this is you celebrate afterwards. So yay, I did it. I, I completed this today. And that for me, that is non-negotiable in terms of having this self-care routine, because I don't see it as a separation between that and the importance of my work. So as CEO of Function Muslim Coaching Academy, I have this huge mission to help people become health coaches, to provide the best training possible for them, to connect doctors with coaches. And so it's such a big mission that inspires me to stay sharp. And the way to do that is through these self-care routines. That's an amazing, amazing that you've been able to not just maintain it, but also codify it in a way where you can teach it. And, and I wanted to really let you talk more about that. So, and that's what you're doing. You're able to impart this knowledge in a way where you're training this cohort of coaches and is it working? I mean, are you seeing improvements? Oh, it absolutely is. So, uh, there has been an explosion of interest in health coaching that uh, post pandemic, this is one of the most rapidly growing careers. People are realizing they want a fulfilling career. They could do this on the side. They can have their existing day job um, and still be coaching on the side. They don't have to come from a healthcare field. Many of them do. We've seen a lot of doctors decide, hey, I want to be a health coach. Either they're continuing to keep their medical license and now they are using it in their practice or some, particularly they may be getting older nearing retirement and I'm just going to become a health coach. Um, so that I can work across state lines, I can work anywhere in the world, and um, I can um, still fulfill this mission of helping others. So there's many ways um, that this is, is working, and uh, so I'm just thrilled to be a part of it, and I'm just overwhelmed with the um, graduates of our program. They're all over the world and just I hear the amazing things that they are doing. We also know that when you become a coach, you personally are transformed. So the process is so powerful that just the act of engaging in somebody and helping them as a coach, you are helped yourself. Um, I saw this in all the years I was a psychologist, but even more so in a coaching relationship. Yeah, I I was going to ask you about that. It's like who coaches the coaches, right? But it's it's um it's a positive reinforcement scheme, right? It's a mutual appreciation yep. society that Absolutely. works. Absolutely. How does one become a coach? So what's the process, and um, how do they get a hold of you know what you're working on now, with the with the academy and and so on and so forth. Yeah, so um, they, um, it, our program is, is 100% remote. It's a 12-month training because we believe there might be some that are promising, oh, you could be a coach in like two months, go through this program. And it really is a process of, of, um, of growing, being nurtured, and practicing these skills. And you are becoming this expert in behavior change. So... Uh, it is uh, what we do is a combination of 
uh, what's called asynchronous and synchronous learning. So the asynchronous would be you go through, you have a learning management system and you open up talks and you have lessons. And uh, then you have live training sessions, live meaning over Zoom, where you are working with a small group throughout your year of training. You have a course facilitator, you are getting mentored, you're getting supported as you are learning these skills. Uh, we also have a business building part of the curriculum where you're learning how to go out into the world and communicate well what you do as a coach, uh, get hired through med by medical practices, by corporations, um, or start your own business. We have many people who are entrepreneurial and want to do that. And, um, and just, yeah, the, uh, you don't need a healthcare background. Um, we have people who uh, have no training and we have people who are medical doctors or they have PhDs in molecular biology and they're becoming health coaches. That's so amazing. Whole gamut. It's amazing. So it's almost like the, you know, humans are just designed to help each other in some way. It's like yes. the, some genes are being activated. They've been probably conserved and propagated for, for many years, right? Because we're social I love creatures. That. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like yeah. we already have the genes there. It's kind of like, you know, the epigenetics of coaching, right? Totally. Um, yeah, that's so interesting to me. And, you, you know, obviously we're working together on, on something as well along those lines. So I guess um, I, I want to know in just give me the 50 years from now. You know, what do you feel like? You know, I, I, it's always interesting to talk to a psychologist because you play the game The Sims. Yes, and my kids love that when they're. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about The Sims is when it was coming out, people in the at Maxis uh, or Electronic Arts, they were like, the execs were like, what is this? They're like, well, it's this game, and what, what, what do you do with the game? You just live life. We're like, well, that's boring. No one's going to play that. Like people are sick of living life, so why would they want to play a game? What do you do? You you move these characters around and you build like your kitchen and stuff. And they're like, yeah, it's dumb. No one's gonna play. And then it comes out. It's like the most popular game for years, right? So it's like and it, and it crosses this cultural divide of video games. Like women, men, kids, adults, everyone loves playing. If you could run The Sims, if you could run healthcare or just well-being, forget about the healthcare industrial complex, just to say well-being, what does that look like for you in 50 years? Like, what does that look like for what we should morph to? What is that ideal if you could build it in The Sims? What do our lives look like, you know, for, for our grandkids or great-grandkids? Yeah. Or... Well, first of all, I would build in um, a, a health coach in every medical office. So I would insert a, a health coach uh, into the Sims world and <laughs> their town or their, their environment. And then uh, it would be a community. I would bring um, this, this world uh, where people connected with one another, where you um, had your community of people who get you, where you feel that you can be heard and you can also care for others. So it's that strong sense of community that is how you get meaning and purpose. You feel you belong to something. And uh, it would be having um, an element of spirituality where there, again, there's a connection to something greater than yourself. It doesn't have to be organized religion necessarily. It can be. And then there is strong um, family communication 
as well as uh, if I had my my way that people it would be organic food, it would be uh, everybody getting out in nature. So the people in The Sims would be moving around. It can be your way. It's The Sims. You can do exactly. You can put a Whole Foods every. <laughs> That's right. There'd be a. <laughs> And everyone, and they'd have a garden, and they would all be eating together, and uh, they would be moving together, you know, taking walks after dinner, and uh, they would the sleep environment. Every they I would put in, um, be, you know, wonderful um, sleep surroundings, darkened rooms, and organic mattresses, and uh, having um, good amount of sleep as well as having work that's meaningful, probably remote. I think we're not going back to those office cubicles um, for everybody. We've learned the, uh, how much we can work away from home. So we'd love to, to build more of that in and, uh, and just connecting around the world so that this <clears throat> through platforms like Clubhouse, we're seeing this happen. I monitored a room today, it was a networking room through our Functional Medicine Collective Club. And there was a medical student um, from India. There was a doctor uh, from Kashmir who comes every week. We got to know each other. And so we're just connecting from all parts of the world. And I love that. So that's, I put that into the game as well. <laughs> I think we can build this game. So how can people, how can people help you right now? Yeah. So, um, you know, my mission is to train health coaches. So um, functionalmedicinecoaching.org. It thrills me when I see people coming uh, to get information. Either they want to be a coach, they might be a clinician who wants to refer to a coach or hire a coach. And we serve that population as well. Um, or if you're listening and you're thinking, gee, I'd really like to get my own personal coach because I've got some issues I'd like to work on. Um, they can also go to our find a coach and connect with somebody. And what about the science of coaching, Sandy? I mean, it feels like as you explore this and kind of take the principles that, you know, um, the, the, the merge of the research after years, can you describe what what's the bleeding edge of you know what do we what are we not so sure about with coaching that we're that's exciting areas of research to explore what are we learning about human behavior that we didn't know before because now that you've got a whole cohort of coaches out there gathering this information about what's working and what's not yeah so we're learning more about um, the power of behavior change when you have an ally when you have somebody with you and because we're, we're just learning we can't do it alone. You know, we need to, to have somebody there. We also are learning in terms of the science of coaching that it has to be a genuine relationship. There are, for example, insurance companies that have trained people. It's like a go through a two week training program, learn motivational interviewing. Everybody thinks coaching is just motivational interviewing and you have a checklist of questions and uh, you can ask, uh, you know, how are you doing? Are you on your blood pressure medication? And then you just ask those questions and maybe you have a script that has to do with motivational interviewing as if that would work in terms of creating a, a truly uh, a, a true coaching relationship that would lead right. to sustaining changes. So it really is nurturing a relationship. It's something that is, is genuine. It's genuine caring. 
And so it can be, that's, that's what I think what we're finding is so important. And people miss this connection. They miss having somebody to listen to them or they are also, when you are serving others, you are healed as well. And so, and so I think that is significant. The other thing that it, this can be done so effectively in groups so that community can be getting people together with a coach or two coaches co-facilitating a group. And increasingly we're seeing this as very, very important online. You can go to in, in a Zoom room and you can really connect with people and they become your community. And it helps to cut down on the isolation because one of the biggest risk factors for chronic disease is loneliness. And so if we can address that by group medical visits, that's a whole other area that um, is growing and is showing great, great possibility for being effective. That is uh, very exciting, and I feel like this is the real key to flipping the script of kind of doing all these suboptimal behaviors and then waiting for you know, pharmaceuticals and medical procedures to save us. And I love the, the root cause um, uh, protocol right behind all this. Like, let's go find out what's really, really happening to people. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time out of a very busy day of, of everything from learning new languages to, to engaging in dance and, 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 and running a very successful, um, uh, uh, I shouldn't say startup, but organization really taking this, your version of The Sims to life. Um,